scripture reading this morning is taken from John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Again, that's John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. We found on pages 941 in the Pew Bibles. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, uh, we welcome you. We thank you for being with us. It's an encouragement to us that you're here. We hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It is exciting to hear the announcement that Mike has made this morning, encouraging us to be a, bar, a part of the stateside campaign this year. Let's all be a part of it through prayer and then figure out what place and kind of involvement that you can have in that. Remember the meetings on Sunday afternoons at 5 o'clock over the next several weeks. It's also exciting to think that VBS is just around the corner. There are postcards that many of you received with really valuable information, which ultimately is encouraging you right now to register. Those postcards, there are extras in the base of the windows and also all throughout the foyer. So be sure and pick those up and let others know uh, about the opportunity to uh, have their children at Vacation Bible School. It truly is one of our highlights of the summer. Also speaking of highlights of the summer for our youth, uh, today is the beginning of our summer camp, our Bible summer camp. And we are thankful uh, for all of the hard work that's gone into the plans and for the investment of the youth to be a part of that. And let's all be prayerful that it'll be a great spiritual week of growth and that a lot of good would come out of this as many of our youth will leave this afternoon to participate in that. When we think about where we've been over this past several months in studying God's Word together. You remember back several months ago, everybody was handed an acorn. And the idea of that was to hold it in your hand and imagine what God could see in the potential of that acorn. That within it, God could see a mighty oak tree. Well, what if someone walked in off the streets and said to us, you know, I love God. I really don't know much about Him, and I really don't know if He expects anything of me. Our reply should be, yes. God does have expectations for us. As a matter of fact, God has great expectations for us. And so what we did over the next several months is we talked about the fact that we ought to choose God. And if we do choose God, we need to have the first and greatest commandment fulfilled in our life. And that is to love God with all of our being. And if we do that, that, that will also call us to live truth because truth is inseparable from God's love, or at least living that truth. But as we live that truth, we're going to bear fruit in our life. And as we bear that fruit in our life, we're going to see that the vine should stay connected to the branch for life. We studied about how important it was to be connected for life because we're a part of the church that's an eternal plan. There's been spiritual battles fought for this church to exist. Now, if we connect with God for life, what is one of the things that God has always expected of his believers? He has always expected his believers to worship him. Worship God. What do you give someone 
that has everything. This past week, I looked on a website that supposedly were gifts for people that have everything. And one was, give them grocery bag holders because it'll assure you you'll never have to make a second trip. Another was a Lego clock because I guess after all, reading numbers is too easy. Or a magic wand that's actually a remote control TV. That way he'll feel like he has even more power. Or how about one that everyone would want, and that is a spoon for Oreo cookies. You'll never find your cookie in the bottom of the milk again. Or maybe your spouse is away on business or, or, or whatever. You can have a one-armed pillow to make you feel like that you're not quite so lonely. Or perhaps my favorite was the squirrel feeder that is actually built as a chair because after all, those limbs probably aren't as comfortable as what we first thought. But have you ever thought about this? What do you give someone that has everything? What do you give God who owns it all? What do you give the almighty God who has the deed to the universe? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has everything. What do you give him? Or let's ask that very same thing from just a slightly different angle. Does he want anything? If he has everything, does he want anything? What does God want? What does God want from me? What does God want from you? If you would, look in your Bibles in John the fourth chapter. In John the fourth chapter, we read in verse 23 and 24, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking. Is God looking for anything? The Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Listen, if you've ever wondered, does this God that has everything want anything? The answer is yes, and Jesus makes it very clear. He wants your worship. As a matter of fact, he is seeking. He is searching to see if he can find individuals that are worshiping him. God wants that that much. But also, do you notice on these two sentences that we've just read? When we go to the next slide, it's the same two sentences, but do you notice here what's highlighted? The word worship, or a form of it, is used five times in two sentences. Jesus makes one of the most remarkable statements about worship that we read anywhere in the Bible, and he says it in two sentences. And the truth is, it's really in one sentence, and he just emphasizes it again in the second sentence. Now, I'm not saying that the other passages that teach about worship aren't important. They're absolutely important. But if we had to pick out one passage that said, what gives us the principles to understand worship, this would probably have to be the go-to passage. If you want to understand what is worship, these verses here can help us tremendously. Now, let's think about that word what for just a moment. Right now, if I ask you to take out a piece of paper and I want you to write a brief definition, I'm just meaning two or three sentences, a definition of what is worship, what would you write down? Now, let me go ahead and add, for this little exercise sake, you're not allowed to write on that piece of paper how you worship. I know I'm saying that's not important. That's very important, but for our exercise right now, 
I'd like for you to just kind of test yourself. Could you define what worship is without describing how to do it? I believe that's very important for us. Because wouldn't it be a shame if we knew the form of something, but we forgot entirely why we do it? Let me illustrate this. Perhaps all of us have seen, maybe more than what we'd ever want to see, a little league coach that forgets what he's doing. Imagine, if you will, a scene of a little league coach that knows exactly how to teach the, the, the young players how to swing a bat and connect with the ball. He knows how to teach them to run the bases. He knows how, notice the word how, he knows how to teach them to field a ball and what to do with it when it's in their hands. But yet when you watch him on the field, you see him talk to the youngsters as if they're major leaguers. You see him lose his cool and he keeps only the best nine out on the field because it doesn't matter about the other ones because all that matters is winning the game. You see him kick dirt on the umpire. You see him yell at the kids when they make a mistake and just belittle them. And someone in the stand wisely summarizes and says, he knows how to play the game, but he has forgotten what he's doing out there on the field. My fear this morning is how many of us, we know the form of worship. We know how to worship. But do we remember what we're doing as we fulfill the how? Back to that piece of paper. What would you write as the definition of what worship is? Well, let's try to give some definitions that come from the biblical words. The word in English in our scriptures is translated from three or four or five different Greek words. One of the words that is probably that helps us the most to understand and is used probably the most frequently. The meaning of that word is, is the idea of to crouch down or to bow down or to fawn as a dog would before its master. You say, well, I'm not an animal. Can you help me understand that? It's the idea of submission and bowing with great reverence. It's the idea like in an Eastern culture, wherever the, the king would be before an individual, and when the individual recognized that they were in the presence of the king, they would immediately bow themselves. That's literally a portion of what the word worship means. The word worship is to submit oneself, to bow, to lift one up in reverence. It also is the very idea of recognizing that we are in the presence of God. It also carries with it the aspect of timidity and shyness because we recognize the one that we are in the presence of is so great and powerful and we are not. And so we approach him with a careful reverence. Another word that's sometimes translated worship is a word that has to do with a life of service. You know, under the old covenant, the Levites, some of them actually dedicated their life to temple service. And so you imagine a man that, that looks at the temple and he says, I have, I've dedicated my life to serving in that temple. And now in the New Testament, we don't offer animals as sacrifices as the priest of the old covenant did. But we are to make an offering. You remember in Romans, the 12th chapter and verse 1, 
Beseech you, brethren, by the mercy of God, you present your bodies, not a dead sacrifice. You present your bodies a living sacrifice. And when he says it's holy, acceptable in God, he says, which is your reasonable service? Some translations would say, which is your spiritual worship? In other words, to devote oneself to wholly serve God is the idea of a spiritual worship. You know, usually enough is said when we study the original text of Greek. But you know, as I studied this this week, I also learned something about our English language that is just a good illustration of what worship means. I've told you from the text of, of what it means in the language that God uses, and that's the most important. But you know, when we do an etymology of words, oftentimes we go back to either Latin or whatever, but oftentimes we go back to Old English. You know, this particular word is very interesting when we don't go all the way back to Old English, we go back to Middle English around the 900s. Did you know in English, the word worship used to be worth sip. The H was missing, but the TH was added to the WOR. Now let's go ahead and put the H back in and let's think about this for just a moment. In English, we used to call this worship. You're here today to worship God. What does that mean? How much do you value and esteem God in your heart? In your understanding how high is your estimation of God? And you've come here this morning to tell God what you believe God is worth to you. And so sometimes we see people that their life and even their worship is full of appreciation and it's so reverent and it's just so genuine, so pure. And you might be, I don't understand how they can do that. How, how can they just come in week after week and, and, and worship doesn't weary them? Worship invigorates them. They are excited about worshiping God. And then on the other hand, somebody else says, I tell you what, it just wears me out coming to worship. Do you realize that the difference is not what's happening in the assembly? The difference is what the individual believes God is worth. Is God worth your best? Is God worth the greatest? Because why? He is the greatest. Is he worth your full submission? Why? Because he is the king with the greatest authority. What you perceive God to be will directly affect what your worship is or isn't. So with that in mind, I ask you to turn back to the book of Malachi. I have two or three passages this morning that I'd like for us to see to just develop the very idea of worth or worship, but especially notice as we're turning here, don't forget what we read in John 4 and 23. You remember what God is seeking? He's seeking true worshipers. In other words, it's not just are you in an assembly where worship is taking place. God is seeking you as an individual to say, are you going to deem me worthy and if so, are you going to... Now, what is worship? It's to pour out adoration to. It's to pour out love to. It's to hold the supreme being high. This morning, is God worthy of that in your mind and in your heart? And if so, are you going to pour that out 
in worship to him. Well, as we end the New Testament, the book of Malachi is written and it reveals a very sad tragedy of Judah at that time. You see, they didn't believe God was worthy of that kind of worship. And we see a lot of flaws. And let me just show you one example as the book begins. In Malachi, the first chapter, let's just jump right down into verse 7 and notice the problem here. Keep in mind, this is where a very important part of their worship was bringing God sacrifices to be offered on an altar. And they were to bring their first and best. But notice what they did. You offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? In other words, see, they're not doing it right, but then they're trying to play that game that we all played as kids with our teachers at school or with our parents. We do wrong, and then we immediately play dumb. Well, how did, I didn't do anything. How, how do you think I defiled you? I've not defiled you. And he says, okay, I'll tell you how you defile me, by saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer what? Blind and sacrifice? Can you imagine? Here's a guy, he's looking across his sheep and he says, it's time for atonement. Uh, we're going to have to offer a lamb. I tell you what, ooh, look at that prize lamb. Oh, look at all these good ones. Wait, there's one back there. He never can keep up with the flock. Look how scrawny, look how weak he is. You know why he can't keep up? He's blind. Go get that blind one. That's the one we'll give to God this year. That's what God's worth. He's not worth your best. He's not worth your increase. He's worth the worst that you have. So when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? You see, they could have said, well, we offered something. We gave God something. And God says, just know, if I am not the highest and the preeminent one in your life, you have begun to practice evil. Anytime we let something, someone become higher than God in our life, we have practiced evil. And our worship can very easily reveal that. And he continues with another example, very similar. When you offer the lame or the sick, so you look around to a lamb that's lame or sick, and you offer it, is it not evil? Offer it then, and see now he says, okay, you think this is going to work vertical? Try it horizontal and see if it will even work horizontal. Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Now notice this word accept. Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? You mean to tell me that when God is seeking true worshipers, he's seeking not because he says, oh, I was just wondering, but it doesn't matter. I accept everything. That's kind of the culture today in America. You can offer God anything in worship and God just says, oh, thank you very much. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible and everywhere in the middle, God makes it very clear that he is worthy of the highest of worship and anything less is evil and he will evaluate and he will either accept or reject based on his evaluation of where you are in his heart and if you're carrying out submissive obedience to his will in worship. He continues in this very same paragraph, drop down to verse 13. You also say, oh, what a weariness. Oh, it's time to offer a lamb again. I am so tired of that alarm going off on Sunday mornings. I am so tired of going and worshiping God. The, the preacher's so boring. I am just worn out with thinking about God. Can't we do something else and still be good religious people? Can I go out in the beauty of nature and, and sit under a tree? And can I there find the, the beauty of God? I am weary with what God asks. I want to find my new and improved ways to worship. 
You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring the stolen. Now, that's the first time he brought that one up. Isn't that interesting? You can steal from someone and try to worship. How many times have you come into the house of worship and you sit around people that are worshiping, you didn't worship at all in some way, you thought, I'm going to steal their worship and offer to God in some way God's going to accept it, even though I don't think God is all that great. He's going to accept it because I'm stealing it from the people around. Listen, the people around you cannot worship for you. You either offer it to God as genuine, your worship to him, or maybe you're trying to steal it, the lame, the sick. Thus you bring an offering. In other words, I did it. I went to worship. I brought something. But notice the Lord says, should I accept this from your hand? What's God doing? He's evaluating. He's looking at it. He's seeing if it is worthy ship. Says the Lord, but curse be the deceiver who has in a flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Why? Now, this is going to be the point where now we're going to see what we've been saying. We're going to see it in Scripture. We're going to emphasize it one more time in Psalms in just a minute. But notice this. Why would we do this? Why would we offer the God our best? Why? I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Worship is always tied to the understanding of the one worshiping, understanding who God is. Listen, if I don't understand that he's the great king, if I don't understand he's the creator, if I don't understand that he's the redeemer, if I don't understand that he is my only powerful hope, I can't worship him as I'm supposed to worship him because that's what worship is built out of. It's coming from a heart that truly recognizes and appreciates who God is. And out of that, you know, the, the psalmist says, my cup runs over. Does your cup run over? Does your cup run over? I have been thinking this week of how much God has loved me. I've been thinking this week how the almighty, powerful God has saved me. I've been thinking about my cup running over. I can't come into, I can't wait to come into worship. I'm not weary with it. I can't wait to come into worship. I have so much love and adoration that I want to sing and pray and give to God. Look at Psalms 95 quickly just to see this. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. See, this is a psalm of praise and worship here. We have singing. We have what they would have done kind of like a chanting. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. See, to come before his presence, the idea of a scene of worship. We recognize we're in the presence of the Almighty God, and we're doing it with humility and thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Why would we do all of that? Look at verse 3. He tells why we do it. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. He's the great God. But notice that word king. It means authority. He reigns over me. He reigns over every earthly king. He reigns over every earthly power. He reigns over every angelic power. He is the king. He is the authority of all. I'm going to submit to him. I am going to worthyship him. He is worth it. He says, he continues. Look at verse four and five. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. Can you imagine a God so big he holds the universe? The height of the hills are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. So because of who he is, how powerful he is, he is our maker. Look at verse six. Oh, come, let us worship. In other words, let us pour out our adoration to him, our love to him, and bow down the humility. Let us kneel the posture of humility before the Lord who? Our maker. It's always tied back to who he is. 
as to whether or not we worship worthyship. And so in John 4 and 23, when he talks about the true worshipers, and then he says, for the Father is seeking such. Do you realize that the Father is not just seeking such in the new covenant, which we live under, but it's been this way since the beginning of time. Look back, if you will, in Genesis, the fourth chapter. Remember Genesis 1 is an introduction in the Bible where God says, let me introduce you to me. I am God, your creator. God's name is used 35 times in 34 verses. God says in chapter 1 of Genesis, I want you to know I'm your creator. Genesis 2 is an introduction to you, mankind. Let me introduce you to Adam. Let me introduce you to Eve. Let me introduce you to this institution of marriage. It's going to be the backbone of offspring. All right, three, let me introduce you to the fact that you have an enemy. Here he is a subtle serpent that sneaks in and what he wants to do is separate mankind from God. So we have the three introductions, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. Let me introduce you to God, let me introduce you to yourself, let me introduce you to your enemy. Now the question is, what's the next story in the Bible going to be? We have the introductions out of the way. You know who God is, you know who your enemy is, you know who you are. What's the next story going to be? The next story is going to be God saying... As we open the Holy Bible, let me make sure you understand this. Worship is very important, but just know I don't accept just anything. In other words, he is seeking. He is evaluating. He is inspecting. Let's look at it here in Genesis, the fourth chapter and verse three. In the, present, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn, so that was the first and the best of his flock, and of their fat, and that was of the increase. And the Lord respected, some of your translations will say regarded, others of, of your translations would say found favor. So God respected, he regarded, he found favor with Abel and his offering. But he did not find favor, he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now let's pause there for a moment. The word respect here in the original Hebrew may be a little bit different than what you're first thinking. The word respect literally means to gaze upon. Remember John 4? The Father is seeking such. Who's he seeking? Who's the such? True worshipers. You mean God is gazing down to see this morning who is a true worshiper. Yeah. Well, how does he determine that? Well, the first time we read about worship in the Bible, we get the idea. The word respect is God gazes down to see if what he has found finds favor. Literally, in the lexicon, it has to do with gaze and inspect and favor. Gaze, let me inspect, let me inspect Cain, let me inspect his offering. You know what? Cain puts me highest in his heart. And you know what? His worship that he's brought to me proves that I'm highest in his heart. Ooh, look over here at, at I'm sorry, that was Abel. Look over here at Cain. God doesn't mix it up though. And, and, and look, he looks over at Cain, he says, whoa, look, it's obvious. I'm not highest in his heart. Well, as a matter of fact, look at his offering. It's obvious I'm not highest in his heart and I'm not worthy ship of the highest position. And so this offends Cain and he's very angry. In verse six, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance falling? If you do well, some translations say if you do righteous. In other words, you put me back to where I belong in your heart and you obey me. Will you not be what? 
accepted. What is the Lord doing? The Lord is looking. He is searching for true worshipers. And when someone will not bring the best, it is obvious that God is not reigning in their heart. And therefore, God says, I won't accept the person and I will not accept their offering. But on the other hand, when the heart is right, God says, I accept the person, the worshiper, and I accept their worship. Do you see God on a throne high and lifted up, worthy of being the preeminent power in your life? He's your creator. He is the only hope that you have for eternity because he loves you more than anybody's ever loved you. Or do you see God as a beggar? And I know a lot of people are going to be like, no, I don't see God's beggar. But Paul's there. I'm not saying that's your direct thought. I'm saying by the way you treat him. Do you treat God with the aspect of, sure, God just accepts anything. You know, I am so thankful. If I've got a blind lamb, God's just thankful I brought him a blind lamb. If I've got a weak or a sick lamb, God's just thankful. Listen, I've got God in my life. No, is God the ultimate one in your life? And your worship will prove it. What I learned today, number one, the true worshiper must first adore and love God with all of his being. You see, the first greatest commandment cannot be separated from worship. Number two, the true worshiper recognizes the worthiness of God as creator, redeemer, sustainer, king of all nations, God of all gods. That's said over and over in passages that deal with worship. Number three, God is seeking or examining worshipers and their worship before he accepts it or them. Number four, God isn't a beggar, but he's the almighty to be feared as taught in Hebrews 12, 23 through 29. Worship God. Worthy ship God. Is there anything we can do this morning to help you place God in the worthy position in your heart and in your life that he deserves? He wants what is right and best for you. He wants an eternal life for you but he won't force you. But he will do this. He'll look down and he'll evaluate you. And there's coming a final day of judgment where that evaluation will be stated openly. And we'll all either receive individually salvation or condemnation based upon where God was and he is in our life. He doesn't accept leftovers. He doesn't accept second place. And the reason he doesn't is because of who he is. He is the creator, the God of all gods, the king of all kings, the only savior, creator, magnificent one that we know and that exists. If you're ready this morning to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, we'd be honored to witness that, to be a part of that, to encourage you to do that as a believer that's willing to repent and confess Jesus. Maybe you've begun that journey and along the way you've lost sight of that journey. And maybe God is still very much in your life, but maybe God has just taken second place. And this morning we all recognize the fact that God must be in first place in our life. He must be the king. He must be the prominent one. This morning, if you need to confess sin and pray forgiveness, if we can help you in any way,